As the children are dismissed, we're going to read Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Two years ago, we began going through Revelation during the season of Advent to help us to not just look back at Jesus' first Advent, which means his coming or his arrival, but in this book, we will look ahead also to his second Advent, the fact that he's coming back. So we don't want to just appreciate at Christmas time that he did come. We want to remember and anticipate the fact that he is coming back and be ready for that. And I think this will help us to have a really well-rounded, full celebration of Jesus' birth together, remembering that he wasn't just born for us, and he didn't just live for us, and he didn't just die for us. He was resurrected from the dead, and he is alive right now, and he's in charge of his church, and he's coming back. And so we're reading these introductory letters to individual churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation each Sunday. And this Sunday, we look at the letter to the church in Thyatira. We'll begin at verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I will say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we're praying now because we know we need your Holy Spirit to guide us and help us to listen well and to receive this passage to understand it, and to respond submissively and appropriately to it. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit, each one that you've brought here today, and speak to us powerfully and clearly through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We're working our way through these introductions to the book of Revelation, each one addressed to a specific, real, ancient church. And the way we're approaching it this year is that we're listening to Jesus. We want to listen well so that we can give him good gifts this Christmas. We talked last week about the fact that if you want to be a good gift giver, you need to be a good listener to know what the person you're giving gifts to wants. The most important question for us as Christians isn't what does our spouse want for Christmas, what do our children want for Christmas, what do our uh, friends want for Christmas. It's what does Jesus want from his church this Christmas, and all the time. So we're wanting to listen well. We want to listen well to this passage also. 
And it begins at verse 18, the same way we began last week. To start right, we need to remember Jesus as he is now and see Jesus as he is now. He is resurrected. He is glorified. He is at the right hand of the Father. And listen to how verse 18 describes him. It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, again, it's not completely clear if that's a literal angel, if churches or or areas of Christians have representative angels that serve them before the Father, or if this is a messenger, a human being that was going to bring this message back to the church. Uh, The same word is kind of used both ways in different passages of Scripture, so we're not entirely sure. But it's not really the focus of the passage anyway, so let's keep reading. The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So first, as we're just right now recalibrating our perspective of who Jesus is, remember that he is the Son of God. In Thyatira, they worshipped all kinds of false gods, including the son of Zeus, Apollo. Maybe, that he, maybe he's pointing this out just to remind you that Jesus is the son of the one true God, and he is worth our worship and devotion as opposed to those false gods that you're worshiping. So he's the son of God. He has eyes like flame of fire. Now, Revelation uses a lot of imagery to make its point, so I don't know that we should think that if we were to see Jesus, it would actually look like he had laser beam fire eyes. I think what the imagery is pointing to, based on my reading this week, is that he has penetrating, all-knowing insight. He sees. He sees reality. He sees you and me. He sees his churches. And he sees all the way down to the core with complete accuracy. You know, that the funniest of all the common Christmas songs is the one about Santa Claus where he sees you when you're sleeping and he knows when you're awake. So you better watch out and you better be good for goodness sake. Like Santa, maybe he sees you when you're sleeping, sees when you're awake. Maybe he watches the the things that you do and all that. Jesus sees all the way down beyond that to your motivations, what you meant to say, your regrets. He sees your past, your future, your present. Jesus is the one with, with eyes like flame of fire. He's also the one with feet like bronze. This seems biblically to be an image suggesting purity and strength and stability of direction. That's what the feet probably represent. So again, if we were to actually see Jesus right now, I don't think he would be clomping in with bronze feet. I think it's saying he knows what's going on. He has eyes like fire. And he knows where he's headed. He has feet like bronze. He knows what he's doing. And he knows what's going on. This is part of what makes him so well qualified to be the head of his church and to address his churches like he is in these passages. He is absolutely qualified to be the head of the church. With a capital C in every church with a lowercase c, including Doolin's Grove Church. He is the head of our church. He is in charge because he knows what's going on and what he's up to. I am 100% convinced that if we will listen to Jesus Christ, we will thrive as a church. I'm 100% convinced that if we will, as individuals who make up a church, live our life by 
his perspective and what he says to do, we will thrive as a church. I've always believed that. I believe it 100% now as well. And that's why we spend so much time listening to him and his word. That's why this is so important. Our worship services aren't about evoking a certain feeling. That's why I don't call them a worship experience. Some churches call it, come to the worship experience. It will be an experience. Everything, your drive home will be an experience. I mean, everything is an experience. We are here to interact with the one true God, and he speaks to us through his word, and he knows what's going on, and he knows what he's doing. So we listen. We want to listen well right now. We don't want to just go with our gut instinct. We don't want to go with trends. We don't want to go with what the world presses upon us. We want to listen to the one with the eyes like fire and the feet like bronze. So what does he want from his churches? We can glean a lot by listening in on what he says to this church in Thyatira. And the first thing we see is that he wants good deeds. He wants good deeds from his people. He expects good works from his churches. Look back at verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So he sees them and he commends them. I know you're, you're working hard and you're doing good works, works of love, works of faith, works of service, works of steadfastness and endurance. And what you're doing now is even, even greater than what you used to do. You're growing in all these things, and that's good. Good job. Now, we always want to remember that we are not saved by our good works. You're saved by faith, uh, by grace through faith, not of works. But if you keep reading in that passage, it's clear that even though you're not saved by good works, you are saved to good works. And if you read on into verse 10, it's clear that we're new creations created for good works that God prepared beforehand for us. So we've got works to do as Christians. We're not just saved so that we're sealed and secured until Jesus returns, and now we just kind of need to keep our heads down and avoid getting into any sin that's too bad. We have a lot of positive good works to do. My grandpa Broadway, my dad's dad, would always give us grandkids work gloves every Christmas. And he did it kind of as a joke because he was always giving us a hard time about how we never did any work. And he was working all the time. He woke up, put on his work clothes, and worked until the day that he died. And so he would always give us work gloves, and he'd be like, well, now you can do some work for once. And I've thought after studying this this week and thinking about it, work gloves would be a pretty appropriate gift symbolically to give to someone once they're baptized and join into the church. Like, it's time to get to work. God has prepared good works beforehand for us to walk in, and every new day is going to be a day filled with opportunities for good works that we get to do as Christians. They don't save us. They don't make God love us anymore than he already does. He already loves us at the maximum level because we're in Jesus, but we get to do these things now as Christians, and it's awesome. We get to love God and love people. And the physical expression of that is the service mentioned here. We get to live an active life of caring for other people, taking care of other people's needs instead of our own, trying to fulfill other people's desires instead of our own, not thinking about ourselves so much anymore, but thinking about other people. We're freed from all that selfishness now to be selfless and love and serve people. And we'll have opportunities for works of faith, which the visible expression of that often is patient endurance, as mentioned in this passage. 
Every day that you just endure the hardships of this fallen world pleases our Lord Jesus Christ. It pleases him when you just patiently endure another hard day at work with coworkers that are really cruel to you, but you don't lash out and slap them with your words, but you hold your tongue because you know that honors Jesus Christ, and you get to do that. That's a good deed. It's good. It pleases God. I like what it says there at the end, and that your latter works exceed the first. It pleases Jesus when we grow in these things. We, we talked about this last week, but we in our modern American culture, we're all about a strong start, but we're not so enthusiastic about the long daily grind of continually moving in the right direction, and so many don't finish well. A lot of people start well, but not everybody finishes well. But God intends for his churches to grow in these good deeds. We should be a more loving, a more faithful church next year at this time than we are right now. We should always be growing. Our work should be exceeding the works that we used to do. We should be increasingly dedicated to these things. Again, this is why I don't like launch language. I know we love to launch things, but the Bible uses planting language. Jesus loves to plant things, to nurture things that will grow and grow and grow and be there forever and just continually expand. That's what the kingdom of God is like. So we're not a church that's all about launching things. We're a church about the daily faithfulness that pleases our Lord Jesus Christ and grows over time. That's what we're focused on. So let's be a church always increasing in works of love and faith, service, and patient endurance. And let next year, next Christmas, find us even more active in acts of service and endurance and even more fruitful in acts of love and faith. Now, as we keep reading into this passage, and you remember it because we read the whole thing at the beginning, they were doing really great with the good deeds, but they weren't doing really great in every area. And it's possible to be doing well in good deeds, but still have a problem as a church. And they did have a problem as a church. Let's read verse 20. This is where it gets weird. Revelation is a weird book. And there's mysteries in Revelation that we don't still fully understand. And there's always something unexpected around every curve. So up to verse 19, we kind of have our, a grasp on things. But in verse 20, hang on to your seat. But I have this against you, Jesus says. Jesus has things against his churches. He doesn't like it when his churches go astray. He doesn't just say, well, that's okay. He wants to address it. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, before we get into understanding exactly what he is trying to say, it's clear that Jesus wants good deeds from his churches, but he also wants good doctrine from his churches. He wants them both. And if we want to please Jesus this Christmas, we need to have our eyes on both. Jesus likes good deeds and good doctrine. So what's going on here in the church of Thyatira? There's not a great deal of detail given to us, but there's enough to get a picture Who is this Jezebel? Was probably a nickname given to a woman in that church, a real woman who was probably the leader of a movement of false teaching among the church. And the nickname most likely points back 
to the real person in the Old Testament, a queen named Jezebel, who through her influence led the Israelites toward idolatry. And so this woman was leading God's people in this church toward idolatry. And so maybe she was known to the faithful Christians in that town, or maybe it's just the way Jesus himself wanted to identify her. She is a Jezebel. She's just like that woman. She's leading my people away from me and into idolatry. She calls herself a prophetess, so she's claiming to speak for God. But it's clear here that she isn't. She's teaching and seducing God's people into the same two pitfalls that we saw last week, sexual immorality and idolatry. Remember, these are the two things that really set God's people apart from all the pagan cultures around them from the beginning. Everybody thought God's people were crazy because they only worshipped one God instead of a billion gods. And they reserved sex for monogamous, lifelong, heterosexual marriage. And all the cultures around them wanted to do whatever they wanted to do in relationship to God and sexuality. But God's people had one God and one bed. And here again, in yet another church, they're being seduced away from that into sexual license and idolatrous feasts. Both of these are prominent parts of the pagan culture, and to not participate in these things seemed weird. These feasts had to do not just with religion and idolatry in that way, but with commerce as well. They had all these trade guilds that would attach themselves to certain gods who supposedly gave them prosperity in their different trades, and they would have big feasts, and everyone would come, and they would worship this false god, and then spilling into and even out of these feasts would become uh, would be all of the sexual immorality. And so to cling to one was inevitably to cling to the other. And so this woman apparently was teaching in some way that this was okay for Christians to participate in, or that Christians even should participate in them for some reason. No more explanation is given to us, but that seems to be what's going on. For us, I just want to point out that it is possible to do really well in one category as a church and do really badly in another at the same time. And just because you're doing really well in one category as a church doesn't excuse the doing really poorly in the other. Jesus wants well-rounded, well-balanced churches who are faithful to him in every way, not just their favorite ways. I used to go to the gym. It's been a long time. But you would see those guys that only exclusively worked out the upper body and never, ever worked out the lower body. They would even military crawl just using their arms from their car into the gym so as not to accidentally build muscle on their legs, apparently. And they would be so oddly misshapen because their upper bodies would be these huge hulking masses barely sustained by the tiny twigs hanging off of their torsos. And a lot of churches do the same thing. We pick our favorite muscles and we work them, work them, work them, and we become really strong in some areas, but then there's the ones we just don't want to mess with. And so you'll have some churches like the church in Thyatira that are really strong in good deeds, and they're doing organized service activities all the time. And the calendar is full of good deeds as a church, and that's good, that pleases Jesus. But... They don't put in the work on the doctrinal muscles. And so false teachings begin to infiltrate the church. And as active as they are, it starts to get misguided because they're not being guided by rigorous study and application of Scripture. But then you'll have other churches that are all about rigorous study and application of Scripture. 
and they're, they're growing strong doctrinally. They study the word all the time. It almost feels like an academy. It almost feels like a seminary more than a church. And the people there always have their Bibles with them. They're always in multiple other studies to continue learning, learning, learning. But they're not then acting on that learning through an active life of good deeds, of service to other people. And neither one of them is acceptable before Jesus because he knows we have the Holy Spirit. We have all the resources necessary to thrive in both areas. You know, I, I think that we see churches like this. I know churches that err on both sides. I think you probably know churches that err on both sides. Which side do you think we may err toward? And don't, that's rhetorical. Well, first question, do you think we are perfectly balanced? Good deeds and good doctrine. Yes, we are. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously not. No, no church is perfect, just like no Christian is perfect. So we will... We will be correcting this balance for all of our life as a church, just like you're correcting your own life as a Christian every day. I'm curious which one you think we veer toward. I think that I personally, and then therefore because I personally have this tendency, probably we do as a church, I veer toward more the doctrine part. I really want to get it straight scripturally. And sometimes I can be so in my head that I, I don't get my hands engaged and act on it, and I think that we may run the risk of that same imbalance as a church, in large part because I'm your pastor, and a church sometimes grows over time to look like their pastor. Terrifying prospect. Think about that, and don't just think about that as a, the impersonal institutional Doolin's Grove, because that actually is a mirage and doesn't exist. All that exists is me and you, the person sitting beside you. We are the church. So for us to be imbalanced is for you and me to be imbalanced. And for us to correct it is for you and me to correct it. It's possible to do a really good job in one area and do a bad job in the other. Let's be a well-balanced church devoted to good deeds and good doctrine. Let's have busy hands and busy heads. Let's have open arms and open Bibles as a church. And when we see an imbalance... Let's be really quick to repent and correct it. Which brings us to the third thing. Jesus wants good deeds and good doctrine, and he wants repentance when we get off track. Which brings us to verse 21. He says, I gave her, referring back to this woman that he called Jezebel, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, we're all sinners, and all the people in that church were sinful as well. And it's not that sexual sin is any worse than any other sin. And we are clear on that. We know that. As I've said many times before, you are the worst sinner that you know because you know all the details of your own struggles. And same for me. What's different here isn't that there was sexual immorality involved in Jezebel's sin. What's different is her refusal to repent. Any sin that you try to legitimize and justify as a way of life that is good becomes a major problem that then puts it in a separate category from just the sins that we struggle with. We all have sins that we struggle with. I have sins that I struggle with. That is bad enough, but if I start to say, well, no, that sin is just, it's me, it's who I am, and I'm going to start my own church where that is actually a legitimate practice among my people, then it becomes this extremely destructive and dangerous thing. Sin is a problem. That's why Jesus came and died on the cross, 
so we could be redeemed and forgiven and made right with God. Ongoing unrepentant sin is a problem if it infiltrates a church. The difference is repentance. The difference is repentance. It's not that some people are more righteous than other people. It's that some people repent and others refuse to repent. It seems that for a period of time, if this Jezebel woman had repented, she would have been fully restored in relationship to God and the church and been fully back on track with him. But she refuses, according to the verse. So we want to be a church that is well-balanced, seeking good deeds and good doctrine. And we also want to be a church that's quick to repent, quick to repent. You should repent early and often because none of you have reached perfection. And we as a church have not reached perfection. And we will regularly be convicted by the Holy Spirit of sin. And the right response is always turn from it. The the response is never to argue with God about it. The response is never to accumulate for ourselves teachers who will scratch our itching ears and tell us what we want to hear. The response is repentance. So, now again, we need to think and apply this to ourselves. What sin do we have among us as a church of which we need to repent? What sin do you have as an individual that you need to repent of this morning, that you've been justifying? Or you've been distracting yourself from the conviction of the Holy Spirit? What sins have we brought to the body of our church together collectively that have kind of become ingrained in our church culture because we're so imperfect still that we need to repent of? Because we know we're not perfect yet as individuals or as a church. So we know we'll always have room to grow. We prayed during our prayer meeting there in the fellowship hall this morning, knowing the passage at hand, that the Lord would convict us if there is sin, something specific, that we as individuals need to repent of, or we as a church, and I trust the Holy Spirit to be doing that work. And so I'll leave it there, but if you're feeling some discomfort, there's something that can't get off your mind, that maybe this is what the Spirit is talking about. It probably is. We prayed that he would make it clear to us. And he's giving you time, just like he gave Jezebel time. He gives time, but he doesn't give forever. He didn't give her forever, which brings us to the next point. There are consequences for ongoing, unrepentant sin. Let's read verses 22 through 23. And just so you know, the further we go into this passage, the less clear I am that I understand every detail of it, particularly when we get to the end. So I'm with you. If you're scratching your head, there's some things that I scratch my head about particularly when we get toward the end of the passage. But it's clear that there are consequences for ongoing unrepentant sin. Verses 22 and 23. It says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Now I will give to each of you according to your works. These are tough words. These are words from the same Jesus Christ that we celebrate at Christmas time. Same Jesus that was born humbly in a manger, who is now glorified and at the right hand of God. Now, not all sickness is a result of our sin. Not all pain or tribulation is a result of our sin. Not all death is a result of our specific sins. Some of that is a result of sin in general because we live in a fallen world. 
And so nothing works quite right, and we get sick, and we experience pain, and we do die. But ongoing, unrepentant sin always leads to consequences. It always leads to consequences. It leads to an accumulation of just natural consequences that are programmed into the world. Now, I like to use the example of gluttony, um, which I'll just say is a sin that I struggle with. I'm thankful I still have a relatively good metabolism, so it's not like real evident, but I do struggle with it. And you, many of you also struggle with it, so you know if you just give in to that as an ongoing, unrepentant sin lifestyle, it catches up to you. It, there are natural consequences for it. And it's that way with any sin that we try to adopt. It's not just that it dishonors God. It's not even good for you. But beyond just the natural consequences, there are also divine judgment consequences. And at the very least, on the last day when Jesus returns, we, get, we may get away with our sin for a while. We may think we've found some loophole because we aren't tasting the consequences yet. But we will experience the reality of Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This isn't projected, and I'm going to read it before you have a chance to flip to it. Uh, Joey Brock's like already there, so never mind. We will experience this reality if we embrace ongoing unrepentant sin. It says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart. That's the, that's the opposite of the Christian heart. The, the Christian heart isn't one that is self-righteously perfect and how dare all the rest of you not be. It's, the Christian heart is a soft and repentant heart, quick to acknowledge wrong quick, to allow God to change it. But this verse says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He is he who searches mind and heart. And he says, I will give to each of you according to your works. So there are consequences. It right now feels like that time in the class when the teacher stepped out of the room for a little bit. The longer the teacher is gone, the more anarchy takes hold. And those kids actually start to believe it's always going to be like this. I guess I'm in charge now. We're all in charge of ourselves. But the teacher's coming back. Jesus is going to return. And there are consequences. Now, again, this does not teach that we're saved by our good works. When he says, I'll give to each according to your works, He's not saying, if you do enough good works, then you'll be okay. If you do some bad works, you'll be bad. If that was the case, we would all be goners. The works reveal the heart. In interacting with the Pharisees at one point, Jesus said, do works in keeping with repentance. They did a lot of good works in terms of religiosity and stuff like that, but they didn't do works in keeping with repentance. Their works did not demonstrate soft, repentant hearts being reformed by Jesus Christ. And there are consequences. So the point here is clear. He, we have sin in our lives. If you have sin in your life, he already knows all about it. He is the one who searches mind and heart. And he hasn't yet, there hasn't been a giant fist from the sky that has come down and just pulverized you. And the fact that there hasn't is because he loves you and he's given you time and he wants you to repent and he wants you to come into fellowship with him 
through receiving the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So repent while there's still time. And then finally, the last point, there are rewards for faithfulness. And here we get into the probably the murkiest, most mysterious bit of the passage. I'm just going to read verses 24 through 28. It says, But the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what, what some call the deep things of Satan. Those are harsh words. It's probably, that's meant ironically, it's probable that she, this Jezebel woman, was saying, my teaching, these are the deep things of God. This is the true insight. Like all these other people, they are not enlightened yet like I am. Here are the deep things of God. And God is here ironically saying, well, they're actually the deep things of Satan himself. That's a pretty blistering review. If you, you know, you read reviews on the back of a book to see if you're going to read it. This is his on the back of Jezebel's book. These are the deep things of Satan. I'm going to put that book back on the shelf. I'm not going to read that book. But he says, You who hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. In other words, you're doing these good deeds and you're being faithful to what's true doctrinally. I'm not laying on you any burden beyond that. Just hang in there because I know there's pressure to give in. Verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. There's difficult things to understand in that batch of scripture there, and there's multiple interpretations within that batch of scripture. I just want to make clear the big idea of it for now. Those who hold fast what they have in Jesus Christ, called here conquerors, those who keep Jesus' works until the end, who persevere, who don't turn away, will experience and participate in the fully consummated kingdom of God under King Jesus' righteous reign and rule made real here in a new earth, new heavens and new earth. Now, the exact details of what that's going to look like, I am not going to pretend that I can fully understand that. I think it's a little bit too glorious for us to understand on the front end. And that's the way prophecy usually works. Prophecy is the clearest after it has been fulfilled. We finish with verse 29. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we finish where we began. We want to listen well to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't just want to go right out of here and be like, well, that was neat, and then live our own life the way we want to live our own life, ignoring what he says in his word. We get to live by this. He wants good deeds and good doctrine. And when we get off track, he wants us to repent. It's really not all that burdensome. And it's really quite clear. But we live in a world tailor-made to work against it. And so we have to hang in there together. We have to hold fast together. So the question before I pray for us is, what steps has the Holy Spirit prompted us as a church and you as an individual part of this church to take this week toward good deeds, toward good doctrine, toward repentance? Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for your kindness towards sinners like me and the rest of us in this room that you have given us time to repent. You have made a way for us to be forgiven. You have made a way for us to be right with you. And I just pray for us as a church that we would be fully devoted and engaged in good deeds and that we would also at the same time be fully engaged and devoted to good doctrine. And that when we get off track in either way, when there is any sin in us as individuals who make up this church, that we would be quick to repent and come back into your waiting arms, receive your love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.